0: Today's today's scripture will be uh, Revelations 21, uh, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. One Sunday, a Bible school teacher asked her fifth grade students if they wanted to go to heaven. And then she invited them to raise their hands if they did. And every student in her classroom, except for one, raised their hand. She went up to that little boy and and asked him, Son, don't you want to go to heaven? Why didn't you raise your hand? And he said, Oh, yes, I want to go to heaven. I just thought you were getting up a group right now. And I tell that story, which is one I've told before, because I'm afraid that the mentality reflected by that little boy manifests itself among Christians more often than we care to admit. I'm afraid that more often than not, we want to go to heaven someday. We just don't want to go right now. And that's not the mentality that the first century Christians possess. We're going to read some passages in just a moment from first century Christians, but I first want to consider why is it that sometimes we're not as eager for heaven as they were? I personally think it's because we do an injustice in the way that we present heaven. You see, we do one of two things. We typically either... Compare heaven to experiences on this earth, or we present ill-conceived depictions of heaven. You see, we might do this. We might compare heaven to the happiest place on earth. And so we will make comparisons of heaven to a theme park like Disney World, And we'll come to the conclusion that what we read in Scripture about heaven doesn't sound nearly as enjoyable as being in the presence of Mickey Mouse. Or maybe we'll compare it to a resort vacation on the beach. And we'll come to the conclusion that the descriptions we read about of heaven in the Bible don't sound nearly as appealing as a vacation in the Caribbean. or we'll read the descriptions of heaven and we'll do what the entertainment industry does and depict heaven as some fog bank in the sky where gates miraculously are planted on floating clouds and you're just going to bounce from cloud to cloud with your little angel wings flapping around or And many of us preachers are guilty of doing this. We'll depict heaven as a never-ending worship service. (laughs) And when I say we preachers are guilty of presenting this, I mean when we preach, we're guilty of doing this. But here's the thing. When you journey through Scripture, that's not how heaven is depicted at all. We need to regain a first-century desire for heaven. You see, if you go into the New Testament, you go to Philippians chapter 1, when Paul speaks about departing and being with Christ, he calls it far better than living in this life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 2, when he spoke about the the uh, transition of this earthly tent to our permanent home. He said we groan, we groan eagerly desiring to be clothed with our heavenly home. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 11 spoke of the heroes of faith and said that they desired a better, a heavenly country. Now I just referenced those three verses Paul said heaven is far better. Paul said that he groaned for heaven. And the author of Hebrews said that he desired or longed for heaven. Now, what I want to know is do any of those terms describe your feeling for heaven? Do you groan for heaven? Do you long for heaven? Do you think heaven is going to be far better than this place? And if the answer is no to any of those, you don't understand heaven. And that's what I want to try to change today. Today, as we continue our study of the afterlife, I want to start talking about heaven. I will not stop talking about heaven today, but I want to start it. Because if we fully understand just how magnificent heaven will be, we'll want to go right now. And really, one of the best ways for me to describe heaven to you is by describing what won't be there. By describing what will be missing in heaven. And I want to start with this. The first thing that will be missing in heaven is that there will be no more confrontation with evil. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. We'll spend a lot of time in chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation today. But I want you to notice in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1, in this vision that John has received, he described heaven as a place where, there, where the sea was no more. Now, that may not mean much to you and I, but in the Jewish mindset, the sea was associated with chaos and evil and darkness, with everything that was bad. You can kind of get a glimpse of this when you look at the creation account, because in Genesis chapter 1, as God does his creative work, he repeatedly identifies what he creates as good and it's set in contrast to that which preceded creation which according to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2 is described as being without form and darkness was over the face of the deep now that word deep there that is watery language it's a reference to sea like environment It's talking about what existed before God created everything that is good. Not saying that evil abounded. Talking about pre... Hold on, that word was going to get jumbled there. Talking about the order of the world before there was order. Before God created. You see, in prophetic and wisdom literature of the Old Testament... The sea is always described like a villain. For example, you can go to Psalm chapter 89 and verse 9. There God is described as the one who rules the raging of the sea and stills the rising waves. There are other passages throughout the Old Testament with similar terminology. Anytime the deep or the sea is referenced, it's usually termed as if it is a villain that must be tamed. And you can kind of get that idea when you come to the book of Revelation. Because the sea in the book of Revelation was reviewed as a bad place, just as it was in Jewish literature. In Revelation chapter 13 and verse 1, the sea is depicted as the place where the beast, that metaphorical creature which represented the Roman Empire, where he came from. The idea that John is presenting then is that there is not going to be anything scary, wicked, or evil in heaven. There is not going to be anything to fear in heaven because the sea will be no more. Since the sea is associated with evil, its absence in heaven equates to the absence of evil in heaven. But that's not the only thing I want you to notice about this description of heaven in John chapter 21. John also described heaven in chapter 21 and verse 25, as a place where the, gates shall, where the gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. Now, we don't live in cities that are walled and gated anymore, but we do have gated communities. We live in new neighborhoods that have gates at the entrance. And why? Why do we purchase homes in neighborhoods that have gates on their entrance? It's to protect us. It's to keep bad things out. We understand the protective function of a gate. And what John is communicating to us here as he describes heaven is the fact that heaven is a place that does not need walls and gates. Why? Because nothing evil will ever enter it. It's even described as a place where there is no more night. Not all bad things happen at night, but we have a tendency to associate evil and sin and unrighteousness and and those things which are bad with nighttime because you have the camouflage of night to protect you. But Scripture says there will be no night there. Because God will illuminate it. The whole idea is that in heaven, you don't have anything to fear. In heaven, you don't have to worry if God can protect the borders of His kingdom because God says nothing evil will ever enter it. And that means you're not going to need deadbolts in heaven. You're not going to need security cameras in heaven. You're not going to need Policemen to patrol the streets in heaven you're not going to need to be suspicious of anyone You're not going to be afraid of anything There's not going to be any monsters under the bed or in the closet Heaven is a place where you don't have to worry about your safety That means there will be no more masks in heaven too Amen. I don't know about you, but I believe a place where evil no longer exists is far better than this place. But that's not all. In heaven, there will be no more intimidation by death. Everyone in this room is dying. Some are closer to it than others, but from the time you're born, you are, in a sense, dying. But in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 4, John described heaven as a place where death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying. You see, in heaven, death will no longer have dominion. In fact, we're told in verse 14 of Revelation chapter 20 that death and Hades, which is the realm of the dead, were thrown into the lake of fire. In other words, death will be destroyed at the same time that sin is punished because the two are irreversibly linked together. And If you go back to the Garden of Eden, you'll recall that God created a couple of special trees that he planted in that garden. According to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 9, we're told that out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the middle of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now God gave strict instructions to not eat from one of those trees. He told Adam and Eve, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But no such instruction was given regarding the tree of life. It seems that that tree was fair game the whole time that Adam and Eve resided in the garden. But you may recall that after they sinned, God pronounced consequences on them And then we're told in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22 through 23, that God made the tree of life off limits. He dismissed them from the garden, and then he set up an angel to protect its entrance so that they could not return and eat from that tree. But here's the thing. That tree, which God made for mankind's benefit, and mankind lost because of their sinfulness, that tree will be made available again in heaven. In Revelation chapter 22, and verse 2, John indicated that the tree of life, which is for the healing of the nations, will be present in heaven. Do you know what that means? That means that in heaven, heaven is a place where entropy no longer operates. Now, I went to college for a Bible degree. When you go to college for a Bible degree, there's other subjects they don't worry about for you, like math. That's why we always call the attendance count a preacher's count, because we always round up a little bit. Also, I don't know what 30 minutes looks like. I know what 60 minutes looks like, but not 30 minutes when I preach. Science is another subject you didn't have to worry about too much when you have a Bible degree, so... I'm not an expert when it comes to physics, but I, I have read enough to understand this limited amount, and some of you will be much more knowledgeable on this than I. And if I'm incorrect, please take your time to correct me afterwards. You have a, a willingness to do that most of the time anyway. But entropy is a, a, a factor, a concept, within the second law of thermo, thermodynamics. And if I understand this law of physics correctly, then entropy means that everything in this universe is deteriorating. On this earth, we are bound by the laws of physics. But in heaven, no such law has leverage. In fact, that's one reason Jesus instructed us to lay up treasures in heaven. Because in heaven, nothing rusts Nothing gets destroyed by moths. Nothing is stolen by thieves. Heaven is a place absent decay, absent destruction, absent loss. And I don't know about you, but I believe a place where death no longer has dominion is far better than this place. And in heaven, there will be no more expectation of pain. Revelation 21 and verse 4 also describes heaven as a place where there shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. If you skip over to the 22nd chapter of Revelation and look at verse 3, you'll see that heaven is described as a place where there shall be no more curse. That's key. Pain is associated with the curse. You see, if you go back to the book of Genesis and you look at the fall of man recorded in chapter 3, you come to the point that God pronounces consequences on Adam and Eve for their sin. And we're familiar with those consequences, right? Think about what what Eve was told by God. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16, she is told, I will surely multiply your what? You're a pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. So part of Eve's consequence and part of mankind's consequence thereafter is pain in childbirth. Then look at what God told Adam in verses 17 through 19. He said, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. So part of the consequence pronounced to Adam and experienced by mankind was pain through work. But John said there shall be no more curse in heaven. That means no such pain will be in heaven because heaven is a place where fallenness is obsolete. And I want you to just think for a moment. What does the absence of pain really mean? The absence of pain means there will be no more exhaustion at the end of a long day. The absence of pain means that there will be no more stubbed toes, no more paper cuts, no more jammed fingers, no more sinus pressure. But it also means there will be no more migraine headaches, no more broken hips or torn ligaments, no more chemotherapy, no more dementia, no more multiple sclerosis, no more Parkinson's disease. The absence of pain means that I will never experience shame, remorse, guilt, or anxiety ever again. The absence of pain means that I will never have need of a doctor or medication or a counselor ever again. I don't know about you, but I believe that a place where pain no longer has power is far Better than this place. But not only will heaven be absent pain and absent death and absent evil, it will also be absent sin. There will be no more inclination to sin. So I want to share with you a couple of verses from Revelation chapter 21. If you look at verse 16, John described heaven as a city laid out as a square with its length, breadth, and height all equal. Cube-shaped the shape of perfection. In verse 27 of Revelation chapter 21, John also described heaven as a place where nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. Both of these descriptions of heaven point to the fact that heaven will be a place of absolute perfection. Now, this is not the first time that God created a place of perfection for us. That's what Eden was intended to be. But because we sinned, we were removed from Eden. But here's the beauty of salvation. It's that God's going to reverse what happened in Genesis chapter 3. And one day, because of what Christ did for you and I, those who are washed in his blood will be returned to that Eden-like, sinless existence. But two things are going to be significantly different. One, there's not going to be a tree of the knowledge of good and evil in heaven. Think back to Genesis 3 and that first sin. You may remember that Satan told Eve that eating of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil would open her eyes and make her like God, knowing good and evil. The reality is all temptations find their root in a desire to replace God With something else. Whether that something else be ourselves, or an ideology, or a material object, or a passion, or a feeling, or an experience, or another person, all temptations find their roots in a desire to replace God as the one on the throne. But in heaven, the issue of who sits on the throne has already been decided forever. And we're not going to wrestle with the temptation to dethrone God. Because nothing unclean will ever enter heaven. The other thing that's not going to be there that's going to make heaven perfect is the serpent's not going to be there. The serpent planted that seed of temptation. The serpent intentionally deceived Adam and Eve. But according to Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10, that serpent who we know to be the devil will be thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur and will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So the one who deceived mankind, the one who introduced us to sin, the one who is simply identified as the evil one, he will not be in heaven but instead he will be eternally punished in hell. See, Satan's not going to be there to deceive us. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not going to be there to tempt us. And I don't know about you, but I believe that a place where temptation no longer threatens and sin no longer seduces is far better than this place. And here's one you may not have thought much about. In heaven, there will be no more preoccupation with time. Look at Revelation 21 again and look down at verse 23. John described heaven as a place that had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it because the glory of God illuminated it. What's the significance of of there being no sun or no moon in heaven. Well, you gotta think back to why those things were created in the first place. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 14, we're told that God created those celestial beings and said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. Those things were created to be designators of time, and they're not going to be present in heaven. The purpose of the sun, the moon, and the stars was to tell time, and their absence in heaven indicates the limitlessness of time in heaven. That's why in John's description, in chapter 22 and verse 5, he can Describe heaven as a place where God's servants shall worship Him forever and ever. Now here's the thing, the absence of time may not seem like a big deal to you and I. But do you know what time does? Time constantly reminds me that things end. that phase of your life that you enjoy so much is going to come to an end. You can't stop time. Every day we watch Leah get a little bit older. And as a parent, you know that feeling of, man, this is going too fast. It needs to slow down. Some of you sent your kids off to college this year. Some of you watched your kids get married this year. Some of you had grandchildren come into the world this year. Some of you had to say goodbye to somebody this year. Time is constantly reminding us that things end. And so that great year at school you're having, it's going to come to an end. That great year of work you're having, it's going to come to an end. In fact, that particular role or occupation that you currently possess will one day come to an end. That relationship you have with somebody you dearly love, one day is going to come to an end. We can't stop time. Anybody in here feel too busy? Anybody in here feel like they just don't have enough time? That won't be the case in heaven. And I've actually got to provide one little caveat here. I've talked about the absence of time in heaven. The truth is, time does exist in heaven because time is simply a measuring of events to some degree time will exist in heaven because time is simply a means of measuring the sequence of events this happened before that think about it without time you can't have music we know there's going to be some music in heaven You see, it's not so much that there will be no more time in heaven, but that we will no longer live under its pressure. And so, while that line, when the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more, may not be very good theology, another line, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. That's pretty good theology. I don't know about you, but I believe a place where the clock no longer constricts is far better than this place. And that brings me to the last one. In heaven there will be no more separation from God. In Revelation chapter 21 and verses 2 and 3, John described heaven as a place coming down from God. A place where God will dwell with men and they shall be His people. In the Garden of Eden, the relationship between God and man was unique. God spoke directly with Adam and Eve and even walked in the garden. To some degree, God came down out of heaven to the garden to interact with man in a very special, intimate way. But God has not been able to dwell with His creatures in that same way because sin has distanced us from Him. But in heaven... God will not be separated from us anymore. Once again, He will be able to come down and dwell with us. In Revelation chapter 22 and verse 4, that intimacy is described in such detail that John says, we will see His face and His names will be on our foreheads. In heaven, the separation from God is so remedied that we will see him. When you have a baby, everybody wants to take the opportunity to try to figure out which parent the child looks like the most. And I'm the kind of guy that looks at them and goes, it looks like a that nose isn't even developed. How can you tell whose nose that is? That kid's does a soft spot on the top of its head. How can you tell what that child looks like? But everybody does that. And poor Leah, people keep saying she looks like me. I keep apologizing to her. She hasn't forgiven me yet, but we do that, don't we? We look at children and we compare them to their parents, not just in their physical attributes, but in the way they behave, the way they think, their emotional makeup, their personality. And it's enjoyable to watch your child grow and develop these traits that are just like you. Sometimes it's miserable too. But I tell you what, it's going to be exciting when we get to heaven and we stand before God and we look at the one in whose image we have been made. And I can finally gaze at him and go, that's, that's it. That's how I reflected you. That's what you meant when you said you put your image in me. John describes that intimacy so beautifully that we're going to get to see God. But in Revelation chapter 21, he also describes it in terms of a temple, which I know I've alluded to in a number of sermons over the years. But if you look there in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 22, John said that heaven is a place without a temple because its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Now the Jewish temple possessed the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the very presence of God among the children of Israel. But the interesting thing about the Jewish temple is that it was designed with a complex system of courts that determined how close you could get to that symbolic presence of God. Your closeness to God at the temple was contingent on your ethnicity, your gender, your family of origin, and even your role in that society. That system, of courts reinforced the idea that God was distant and that there were limitations on how close you could get to Him. But in heaven, there is no temple. There is no barrier, there is no obstacle, there is no dividing wall to keep you away from God. you will be able to stand near the throne of God. Well, maybe not stand. My guess is there'll be a lot of falling down. But you'll be able to be in the presence of God in a way that you can't experience in this life, in a way that no one has experienced in this life. And this might be the one thing about heaven that should appeal to us right now more than anything else. Because we understand separation a little differently now than we ever have. In a year where we've all experienced quarantine to some degree or another, some of you have family members that you have not been able to see this year. Some of you have loved ones who you have not been able to step inside the room with this year. For 11 weeks, we didn't come together physically. We understand separation so much differently now. And I want you to think about separation not in terms of yourself, but in terms of God. God has been separated from you. Not because of anything he did, but because of something you did. And all he wants to do is be reunited with you. A loving father who can't be in the same room with you, who longs to be reunited and was willing to do whatever it took to cause that to happen. In heaven, that separation is eliminated. John says there is no temple, there are no courts, there is no division from God. So heaven is a place where distance gets eliminated. And I don't know about you, but I believe that a place where I'm no longer separated from my Savior is far better than this place. I don't know if you realize this. Some of you will, some of you won't. But this is basically the exact same sermon I presented the first time I preached here. I know Todd and Pam will remember it because I preached it in Scotland with you. I love talking about this. Because I believe my number one objective as a proclaimer of the good news to help people want to go to heaven we've talked about things that are missing from heaven no evil no separation no preoccupation with time no intimidation by death No inclination to sin. And no more pain. All that is missing from heaven and all that should motivate us to want to go there because that is far better than anything we'll ever experience here. But that's not the most important thing missing from heaven. Not one of those things is the most important thing missing from heaven. The most important Thing missing from heaven right now is you and me. Because Jesus told us in John chapter 14 that he went there to prepare that place for us. We're what's missing from heaven the most. So what are you going to do to make sure you get there? We're told in the Bible that if we will confess our faith that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God, repent of our sins and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins, we can go to heaven. Is that a decision you have made? Have your sins been washed by the blood of Jesus? If not, why not today? So that you too can be on course to go to heaven. Do you long for it? Do you groan for it? Do you desire it? Then live like it. If you need to make a decision to write your relationship with God in any way so that you can be there one day. We encourage you to come while together we stand and sing. What will you do with Jesus? The question comes to you, and you must give an answer. closing song, a closing prayer, and then uh, we'll be dismissed in order um, with a mask and whatnot. Thank you for being here this morning. Uh, We'll have uh, another chance to worship and study and learn together at six o'clock tonight.